surprised when he asked me to fill in for him because I know there's other men here who are just as capable, if not more capable, of filling in than I am. Uh, so I'm grateful for the opportunity. And uh, the memory verse that they had up there about sowing and reaping, well, my message today is not dealing with finances. <laughs> Although that's kind of what that passage deals with. Over the years, as I have been reading through the Bible chronologically, and I've been doing this for several years now, and if you're not doing it, I would strongly encourage you to do it. As I get to the section in the Old Testament dealing with the prophets, the similarities, the parallels between Israel and our nation is just astonishing. Absolutely astonishing. Now, I want to do just a, a brief overview of the history of Israel. You know that Saul, their first king, he started out pretty good, but he ended up not very good. And then God said, I have a man after my own heart that I'm going to sit on the throne. And that was David. And then we know after David, there was King Solomon. And Solomon started off good. And then he didn't end so well, did he? Because he had too many wives. One's enough as far as I'm concerned. Uh, <laughs> Please don't interpret that the wrong way, all right? I, when I read about some of the men in the Old Testament who had more than one wife and the problems that they had, it's like, I'm so grateful that God designed marriage to be monogamous, you know? <laughs> uh, but King Solomon had too many Gentile wives who turned his heart away from God. And how many times does that happen in marriages today where one spouse is saved and one spouse is not saved? Far too often, I think. But after Solomon died, the kingdom split into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom started off in idolatry and they stayed in idolatry, all right? And the southern kingdom, they had some good kings and they had some bad kings. But over time, they just kind of went downhill. All right. Now, before I go any farther, in your bulletin, hopefully, there's a handout for you. That's an outline of my message. All right. Now, when I asked Pastor Owsley if I could do this, he says, yeah, just don't. Just tell people not to expect it every Sunday, all right? <laughs> yeah. 
So I know he has a tendency not to do that. That's the way I have a tendency to do things. All right. Um, now, if you were to look at the history of our nation, it started out good, did it not? We had a lot of godly men who were involved in establishing this country. I'm not going to say all of them were Christians. Some of them were deists. But at least they had a reference for the book of God, the Bible, which is more than I can say for probably 99% of our politicians nowadays and our judges. Around the middle part of the 1700s, this country had what's called the First Great Awakening, or we would call it a revival. And a couple of the leaders were Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield. George Whitfield came over from England and held a series of services in this country for uh, two or three years. He was working closely with the Wesleys, who were the founder of the Methodist Church. And if you remember, Jonathan Edwards gave the famous sermon, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. And if you want to read it, you can. Just look it up on the internet. It's out there. Uh, I would encourage you to read it if you haven't. And then starting around 1800, there was a second great awakening, okay? And that went on for several years. And some people say there was a third great awakening in the late 1800s. Uh, I do not consider what started in the late 1800s a good, as a third great awakening because that's basically when liberalism or modernism entered the church. And that's when the social gospel got started. And we've kind of been going downhill, in a sense, since then. I have noticed that too many Christians in our nation have bought into the lies of our, of our culture. And I find that very sad. And I must admit, for myself, for too many years, I was guilty of that. And if you look at the time of Hezekiah in the Old Testament, if you remember in the southern kingdom, there were two revivals, so to speak. There was one under Hezekiah and there was one under Josiah. And I'm not going, we'll touch on those just very briefly this morning. But during Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, sent Rabshakeh against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And Rabshakeh, who was the general, he met some of the emissaries that King Hezekiah had sent out. And Rabshakeh was talking real loud so the people on the walls of the city of Jerusalem could hear it. And if you read what he was saying, basically we would call it in today's terminology propaganda. And it was meant to demoralize the people in Jerusalem. Because the Syrian, the Syrian army had a very good or bad reputation, depending on how you want to look at it, 
that they defeated everybody they came against. So the people inside the walls of Jerusalem, they were scared. And how many Christians are scared today because of what they see going on in our culture? The Apostle Paul wrote that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And I'm hoping as, we, as I go through a brief history of the southern kingdom in Israel that we can learn some, some lessons from them and apply those lessons to today. Um, on your handout, I have some quotes there. Dr. J. Gresham Machen, he was a Presbyterian minister back in the early 1900s. Uh, he was head of Princeton University before it went liberal. He said, America today is going downhill with a godly ancestry. And he also said, God pity America when we reach the bottom of the hill. And this was 100 years ago. What would he say now? A U.S. senator in 1964 stated that the average life of the great civilizations of the world has been about 200 years. He went on to say that these civilizations have progressed through the following stages, from bondage to spiritual faith, from spiritual faith to courage, from courage to liberty, from liberty to abundance, from abundance to selfishness, from selfishness to complacency, from complacency to apathy, from apathy back to bondage. Now, where are we on that list? If we're not from apathy back to bondage, we're definitely from complacency to apathy. I think we're at apathy to bondage. Or another way I've heard somebody else put it, spiritual apostasy leads to moral depravity and moral depravity leads to political anarchy. Does that not describe what has happened to our country? And that's exactly what happened with the southern kingdom of Israel. Exactly the same thing. They went into spiritual apostasy, spiritual apostasy, which led to moral depravity. And when you look at their kings, back then, being a king could have been hazardous to your health because lots of them were killed. All right? So open your Bibles, if you will, to 2 Kings chapter 16. And I want to basically go over a few points this morning that I think point to why our country's in the state it's in. And I may very well be preaching to the choir on this, but as I go through this, it will be easy to point the finger to other people. But we need to examine our own hearts as well. All right? I've heard it said that one of the reasons our country's in the state it's in is because of the pulpit. And I agree with that wholeheartedly. 
And I think too many preachers over the years have been more concerned with what the people in the pew have said about them than what their judge is going to say about them. Too many times churches turn into mutual admiration societies where the pastor pats the people in the pews on the back and the people in the pews pat the pastor on the back. And I've been in a church like that, and it's sad. And it's a dead church, unfortunately. Now, in 2 Kings chapter 16, we're going to jump in with King Ahaz. King Ahaz was a very bad king. In today's vernacular, we would call him one bad dude. All right, 2 Kings chapter 16, I'm going to start in verse 10. All right. Now King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, and saw an altar that was at Damascus. And King Ahaz sent to Urijah the priest the design of the altar and its pattern according to all its workmanship. Then Urijah the priest built an altar according to all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. So Urijah the priest made it before King Ahaz came back from Damascus. All right, I'm using New King James, by the way, in case you're following along with up there. Uh, so who makes this altar? Verse 11, Urijah the priest he makes this altar that's patterned after a false god in Assyria. Does anybody see a problem with that? I do. So what's the priest doing? Who's, who's calling the shots as far as the spiritual life of the nation is concerned? The king is. when it should have been the priest. Maybe the priest was afraid to stand up to the king because he thought he might lose his life. As I said before, how many preachers today are more interested in pleasing people than they are in pleasing God? Verse 12, And when the king came back from Damascus, the king saw the altar, and the king approached the altar and made offerings on it. So he burned his burnt offering and his grain offering, and he poured out his drink offering and sprinkled the blood of his peace offerings on the altar. Now these offerings in verse 13, these were the ones that were given to the nation of Israel to do. And they had their own altars there in the temple to do them. But what is King Ahaz basically saying? That's not good enough. He's taking the God-ordained sacrifices and putting them on a pagan altar. Are there churchgoers that do that? Turn your Bibles to Hosea chapter 4. Hosea chapter 4. Hosea was a prophet during the time of Ahaz. Hosea 
I'd like to do the whole chapter, but time will not permit. Uh, let's drop down to verse 6. Actually, Tim, let's go back up to verse 1. <laughs> Hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel. For the Lord brings a charge against the inhabitants of the land. There is no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. Why was there no knowledge of God in the land? Remember, this is during the time of King Ahaz. What was the priest doing? Idol worship. So the people were not getting the, spirit, the spiritual instruction that they needed from the priest because the priest had gone into idolatry and the priest was more important, was more interested in pleasing the king. All right, drop down to verse 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I will also reject you from being priest for me because you have forgotten the law of your God. I will also forget your children. The more they increase, the more they sin against me. I will change their glory into shame. They set up, they, they eat up the sin of my people. They set their heart on their iniquity. And it shall be like people like priests, so I will punish them for their ways and reward them for their deeds. Like people like priests. There's no difference between them. Now, should there be a difference between us and our unbelievers? Should there be a difference between people in positions of Christian leadership in our country than the unbelievers? There should be. And unfortunately, too often, that is not the case. You know, how many times do people in positions of spiritual leadership remember that they are held to a higher standard and that they will be held to a higher standard at the judgment seat of Christ? So do you think I take being up here lightly? No. I don't take being appointed or elected as an elder here lightly either. Because I know I am held to a higher standard. Right. Now basically this is similar to what Proverbs one thirty one says, and I won't turn there just for the sake of time. It says, therefore they shall eat the fruit of their own way and be filled to the full with their own fancies. In other words, you're going to reap what you sow. You're going to reap what you sow. And that not only applies to individuals, it applies to nations. And I can tell you from firsthand personal experience how true that is. You do reap what you sow. You sow the flesh, you're going to reap corruption. All right? I know from firsthand experience how true that is. Now, not all the priests were bad. 
If you read the story in 2 Kings chapter 11, and we won't turn there, Jehoiada was a good priest under King Joash. And as long as Jehoiada was alive, Joash was a good king. But Jehoiada died, then Joash went downhill as a king. All right? Now turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 34. 2 Chronicles chapter 34. We're still dealing with apostate priest. All right? And I'm not going to read all the passage here, but I do want to read some of it. This is Manasseh. Manasseh was a very, very, very bad king. All right? His father was Ammon. Ammon was a bad king. All right? Um, so Second Chronicles chapter. All right, no wonder things weren't. Sorry, I'm take that back. Yeah, Manasseh was a bad king. Manasseh had idol worship, and we're going to get to that here shortly. But in Second King, sorry, Second Chronicles chapter thirty-four. I had chapter thirty-three in my Bible open, and things went was wasn't looking quite right. All right. Uh, so 2 Chronicles chapter 34, we're dealing with King Josiah. Josiah was led a revival. Now verse 14, Josiah had sent the people in to go and clean out the temple because Josiah's father was Manasseh, Manasseh, sorry, Josiah's father was Ammon, who was an idol worshiper. He reigned for two years, and before that his grandfather was Manasseh, who reigned for 55 years, and he was a very wicked king. So there's basically no temple worship going on for 57 years when Josiah comes to the throne. So Josiah tells the priest, go and clean out the temple. So verse 14. Now when they brought the money that was brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. They found it. What does that mean? It was lost, right? Okay. So they had no spiritual instruction for at least 57 years. Then Hilkiah answered and said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan. So Shaphan carried the book to the king, bringing the king word saying all that was committed to your servants they are doing and they have gathered the money that was found in the house of the Lord and have delivered it into the hand of the overseers and the workmen then Shaphan the scribe told the king saying Hilkiah the priest has given me a book and Shaphan read it before the king thus it happened when the king heard the words of the law that he tore his clothes why did he tear his clothes He was already a godly king, even before the book of the law was found. I would credit that to his mother, because his father and his grandfather were very wicked. But he heard the book of the law, 
And I, I'm guessing his mother had instructed him based on what she knew of the law. And he hears this, and he sees what the nation is like and what God's law says. And he gets convicted. And he tears his clothes because I'm sure in that was read the judgments that were pronounced on the nation if they turned their back on God. If there's ever going to be a true revival in this nation, there has to be a good, solid preaching of the word of God from our pulpits. And unfortunately, the number of churches that are doing that nowadays are getting fewer and fewer. And I'm going to say something right now that some of you may disagree with me on, and that's fine. But years ago, it was common for there to be, I'm going to use the, the phrase, hellfire and brimstone preaching. We've gotten away from that in this country. I think it started in the 60s with the hippies and the love movement and the church wanted to be uh, relevant to the culture, so they started preaching about God's love and they kind of turned their back on God's judgment. I'm all in favor of preaching about God's love, but when you don't preach about his righteousness, his holiness, and his judgment, you're giving people a very distorted, one-sided view of God. A holy, righteous, just God requires a payment for sin. And you're either going to pay for it yourself or you're going to trust in what the Lord Jesus Christ did on the cross for you as payment for your sins. One or the other, a righteous, just, holy God requires payment. All right, so Josiah gets convicted and he leads a revival. And if you read on about the story of Josiah, they have a Passover like they had never had before. And he goes up and brings the remnant of some of the people from the northern kingdom because at this point in time, the northern kingdom had gone in to Assyrian captivity, but there were still people up there, fellow Jews. And he went up and offered them, said, come on down and celebrate the Passover with us. And some of them did, not all of them but some of them did. And it was a great Passover. You can finish reading that. Okay. In Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 31, if you want to turn there real quickly. Let me go to Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 5 first. All right, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 5. Thus says the Lord, what injustice have your fathers found in me, that they have gone far from me, have followed idols, and have become idolaters? The priest did not say, where is the Lord? And those who handle the law did not know me. How many people in the pulpits nowadays are totally ignorant of the word of God? 
The rulers, King James says, pastors, also transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that did not profit. And in Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 31, the prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule by their own power. And my people love to have it so. But what will you do in the end? The people had itching ears, right? So how many times do pastors preach to please the people in the pews? I know that Pastor Owsley doesn't do that. <laughs> and I'm grateful that he doesn't. And my wife can tell you, I don't do that. <laughs> and this message may very well kind of rub some people the wrong way. And if that's the case, so be it. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, you don't have to turn there because I think most of you are familiar with this passage. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. If that doesn't describe the state of churches in our country nowadays, I don't know what does. As long as God gives me breath, I hope I, I don't ever get to that point where I'm more interested in tickling people's ears than I am in pleasing my Lord and Savior. But unfortunately, that is what has become of our pulpits too often. And I even see that being the case in some of our fellow grace churches as well, that they are going down that road. And that really bothers me big time. Number two on your handout, idolatry. We've already looked at some verses in relation to that. Uh, turn, if you will, to Second Chronicles 28. Second Chronicles 28, and we've already been there once. Well, we're dealing with King Ahaz. All right, Second Chronicles 28. Ahaz, starting in verse 1, Second Chronicles chapter 28, verse 1. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord as his father David had done. David was the human standard, all right? David was not perfect, but he was the best king that the nation had. Verse 2, for he walked in the ways of the king of Israel, meaning idol worship, and made molded images for the Baals. He burned incense in the valley of the, of the son of Hinnom and burned his children in the fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. And he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, on the hills, and under every green tree. 
Ahaz was the king in the southern kingdom who introduced human sacrifice. That's what it means when it says, and burned his children in the fire in verse 3. If you read the story of Manasseh, Manasseh did exactly the same thing. Where were the priests in this? Why were the priests not saying anything? Why did the priests keep their mouths shut? How many pastors nowadays will not speak out against the sin of abortion because they might offend people in their congregation? And God have mercy on people in pulpits who have no problem with Planned Parenthood. And God have mercy on our past president who said, God bless Planned Parenthood. I would say, sorry, your God is not the God of the Bible. If you want God, God can't do that. In Genesis chapter 9, after Noah got off the flood, God instituted capital punishment, and the primary responsibility of government is to protect innocent life. And I don't know of any life that's more innocent than what's inside a mother's womb. And we have too many, quote, churches, unquote, in this country who are in bed with the abortion industry. And I find that sad. And the priests here weren't any different. They were not any different. Now I know there are people in churches who have had abortions, but God offers forgiveness and healing for that. I think many women who get it have bought into the lies of the abortion industry. They have, unfortunately. But there's no such thing as an, as an unpardonable sin today. There isn't. Unless you want to call rejection of the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ on the cross. If you reject that, then you'll spend eternity in the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. But other than that, there's no unpardonable sin today. And I've heard the testimonies of many women who in an unsaved state, or even a saved state, had an abortion. And how God has healed them of that hurt. And God has forgiven them. Our God is a God of second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh chances, and so on. I'm a living testament to that. Okay? Turn to Jeremiah chapter 44. Jeremiah chapter 44. Jeremiah was the last prophet to the southern kingdom. He was there 
when the walls of Jerusalem fell down to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He was there during the siege. And during that siege, if you read the book of Lamentations, you'll read that there was cannibalism going on in the city of Jerusalem. Why? They couldn't get any food in. And people were dying. So you think things are bad in this country? We got a long way to go. All right? Gen sorry, Jeremiah chapter 44, starting in verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the Jews who dwell in the land of Egypt, who dwell at Migdal, at Tephanes, at Noph, and in the country of Path Pathros, saying, Now after Jerusalem fell, there were Jews who went down to Egypt. And they took Jeremiah with them. And Jeremiah said, don't go down there. You're thinking you're going to escape Nebuchadnezzar. That ain't happening, dudes. He's going to come down there and he's going to take Egypt and you're going to be back under Nebuchadnezzar again. And they went and listened to him. So they took Jeremiah down with them. So he's talking to those Jews in Egypt. All right, verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, You have seen all the calamity that I have brought on Jerusalem and on all the cities of Judah, and behold, this day they are a desolation and no one dwells in them. Why? Because of their wickedness, which they have committed to provoke me to anger. Why does God get angry? because of rebellion in that they went to burn incense and to serve other gods whom they did not know they nor you nor your fathers however i have sent to you all my servants the prophets rising early and sending them saying oh do not do this abominable thing that i hate but they did not listen or incline their ear to turn from their wickedness to burn no incense to other gods. And if you read on Jeremiah 44, the Jews in Egypt, do you think they would listen to him now after what had happened? No. They still would not listen. It just goes to show the hard-heartedness of people. Think of Pharaoh and all the plagues God sent against Pharaoh. And what was Pharaoh's response? He just got, his heart got harder and harder and harder. And how many times do people hear the word of God and they find it convicting and they just harden their heart? You say, what can you do for people like that? Pray for them. Because only God can get through them. If you keep witnessing to them, odds are you're just going to push them farther away. And they're just going to harden their hearts even more. And that's the last thing we should be doing. All right? 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. Now, this is a passage I would expect that most of you are familiar with. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. All right? 
Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away in the lust of it. But he, does, but he who does the will of God abides forever. How many of us have idols in our heart? Ezekiel addressed that, and I didn't look at that passage for the sake of time. Ezekiel 14. Ezekiel is in Babylon. He's a prophet to the captivity in Babylon, and he talks about idols in the heart. How many of us have idols in the heart? In an affluent society, that's a very easy thing to do. Very easy thing to do. Having money and things is not sinful. It's what is your attitude toward it. Do you use it for your own selfish reasons? Or do you use it to bring honor and glory to your heavenly Father and your Savior? The choice is yours. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, Paul writes, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Did you see that nice car our neighbor got? Why can't we get one like that? Wow, they just got a new pool. Can't we get that? How many Christians are in huge amount of debt because they're living beyond their means and they're trying to buy happiness? A whole lot more than you realize. This leads to point number three, affluence. All right? Turn to the book of Amos. Amos chapter 6. And I think we're going to see something that is very much like our country nowadays. Now, Amos prophesied during the reign of Uzziah or or Azariah, king of Judah. All right? So this was early on after the split of the kingdom. Amos chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 1. Woe to you who are at ease in Zion and trust in Mount Samaria, notable persons in the chief nation to whom the house of Israel comes. So he's talking primarily to the leaders. Go over to Calna and see, and from there go to Hamath the Great. Then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? Woe to you who put far off the day of doom, who caused the seed of violence to come near, who lie on beds of ivory, stretch out on your couches, eat lambs from the flock, and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idly to the sound of string instruments, and invent for yourselves 
musical instruments like David and drink wine from bowls and anoint yourselves with the best ointments but are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. You're living high on the hog and you have everything real nice, all the luxuries in life, and you don't care what's going on in your culture with the other people. How many Christians are guilty of that? They're not concerned about the state of the lost, but yet they have lots of nice things. And like I said, there's nothing wrong with nice things. Depends on how you use them and what your attitude is toward them. How many Christians are more interested in pursuing the American dream than they are in pursuing godliness? And if you're a parent, what are you teaching your kids by doing that? Kids learn more from watching their parents than what the parents say. If you're compromising, your kids will compromise more. And we wonder why so many kids from so-called Christian homes leave Christianity? Maybe it's because they're more interested in pursuing the American dream. I think this got really infected in churches in this country after World War II. Because during World War II, things were rationed, right? I wasn't alive back then. I'm not that old. Uh, but then in the 50s, the economy really started to boom. And things really got nice. Well, after World War II, hey, that's great. And how many Christians bought into it? And I think that's really when the body of Christ kind of started to go downhill. And the slope of that downhill has only increased. And we're going downhill faster and faster on a godly ancestry. In Proverbs chapter 23, verse 5, Solomon wrote, Will you set your eyes on that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away like an eagle toward heaven. You can't take it with you, people. You can't. I'm sure all of you have heard the phrase, pay it forward. How we use our resources here in this life that God has blessed us with, how we use them, whether it be for our selfish needs or for his honor and glory, that's going to determine the rewards that we get at the judgment seat of Christ. It's going to play a role in it anyway. So take that into consideration. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 6, and I won't have you turn there just for the sake of time, Starting in verse 7, For we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and the snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. 
For the love of money is the root of all evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in, in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. I can tell you from personal experience how true that is. For too many years, my interest was on career and having nice things. But thank God he got a hold of me and turned my heart around. The idolatry and the affluence leads to no fear of Jehovah. And this leads to blindness, deafness, and uncircumcised hearts. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 5. Jeremiah chapter 5. I'm going to start in verse 20. And I'm not going to read the whole rest of the passage. I'll leave that for you to do. Start in verse 20. Declare this in the house of Jacob and proclaim it in Judah, saying, Hear this now, O foolish people, without understanding, who have eyes and see not, and who have ears and hear not. Remember at this point in time, they were in idol worship, and the priests weren't any help. And there are too many false prophets around. Do you not fear me, says the Lord? Will you not tremble at my presence, who have placed the sand as the bound of the sea by a perpetual decree that it cannot pass beyond it? And though its waves toss to and fro, yet they cannot prevail. Though they roar, yet they cannot pass over it. So he's appealing to his creation. But this people has a defiant and rebellious heart. They have revolted and departed. The priests were not doing their job because they were in apostasy. They went into idolatry, which led the people into idolatry because there was no fear of God. There was no fear of God for the priest, and there is no fear of God for the people. How many pastors nowadays, when they stand in the pulpit, realize that they're going to have to give an account of what they're preaching and teaching? They will. Yeah, that includes me up here right now as well. Includes me when I'm doing Sunday school as well. So turn over back a couple of pages in your Bible to Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah chapter 2. We've kind of already seen the consequences of their rebellion, of their hard-heartedness, of the priests not functioning properly, and them not listening to the prophets. Jeremiah chapter 2, starting in verse 17. Have you not brought this on yourself? In that you have forsaken the Lord your God when he led you in the way 
And now why take the road to Egypt to drink the waters of Sihor? Or why take the road to Assyria to drink the waters of the river? Your own wickedness will correct you and your backslidings will rebuke you. Know therefore and see that is an evil and bitter thing that you have forsaken the Lord your God and the fear of me is not in you, says the Lord God of hosts. Can that be said of us? Do we have the fear of God? Or has the fear of God been put to the side because we're more interested in pursuing the American dream? Now there's some other references on your handout that I'm going to let you read because for the sake of time I won't go there. But the nation was a backsliding nation. Does that not describe our nation? It's easy to point the finger at the pastors. It's easy to point the finger at our political leaders. And I would say, who elected the political leaders? But what about us? What do the unbelievers around us see in us? Do they see us being guilty of idol worship? Oh, they may see you going to church on Sunday, but how many Christians just play church? The reason why this country is in the state it's in begins inside the church. And I know that we can't correct or undo what was done before us, but we can do something about it starting now. Now you may think you're not as bad as other people. And that may be true. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, Paul writes, For we do not class ourselves or, or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. But they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. Which is Paul's way of saying, when you do that, when you're comparing yourself with other people, saying, I'm not as bad as that person, you're being a fool. And Solomon wrote that fools love death, and in Proverbs chapter 12, verse 15, Solomon wrote, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he who heeds counsel is wise. What counsel are we to heed? What's in here? And not just Paul's epistles. I've known churches that all they do is Paul's epistles. And they are as dead as a doornail. That is a doornail. You say, what should our attitude be? I think what David's attitude was. In Psalm chapter 26, verse 2, he wrote, Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my mind and my heart. And in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, I think we're all familiar with these two verses. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties or thoughts. King James has thoughts. New King James has anxieties. I think thoughts is a better translation. 
and see if there's any way, any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We all have blind spots. And if you're married, I can guarantee you, your spouse knows you have blind spots. They may not always vocalize it. <laughs> Sometimes they do. All right? And that's not a bad thing. But how many times when somebody points out some sin in us, what's our first reaction? We get angry, right? I'm not that bad. I'm not as bad as so-and-so. Yeah, then you're being a fool, according to Paul. Ask your neighbors. Most of us wouldn't want to do that. <laughs> I'll tell you one thing that'll point out your blind spots. Get in this book. Get in this book. And I have said before that oftentimes, and this is, this is not uncommon, that when I prepare a message, it's rather convicting. If you think I'm perfect and I don't have any blind spots, I'm sorry, you're wrong. If you don't believe me, just ask my wife. <laughs> now, she'd probably be gracious enough and not tell you any, okay? But she could. She could. Now, I know this morning I've been primarily talking to Christians. And reaping and sowing not only applies to Christians, but it applies to non-Christians as well. Sorry, not non-Christians as well. That's a universal transdispensational principle. It started back in the Garden of Eden, and it's going to happen until the millennial kingdom is over. All right? Sowing and reaping. If you're not a Christian and you're sowing to your flesh, you're just going downhill and you're on the path of self-destruction. And I feel sorry for you if that's what you're doing. Been there, done that, and I don't want to go back. It's not worth it. And to the saints, I encourage you, get in this book. This book is a sword, right? And swords, when they go in, it doesn't tickle. And yeah, it hasn't tickled me on many occasions, I can tell you that. It hasn't. Okay? Let's go to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Father, we thank you for the truthfulness of your word. 
We know your word doesn't put humanity in a very good light. Even though we might like to think we're better than we really are. But Father, we know how sin grieves your heart. And we know that you are a just, righteous, and holy God. And that you require a payment for sin. And Father, for the saints here, I just ask that we would have the attitude of David. That we would let you search our hearts and try us and see if there be any wicked way in us. Father, if there's anybody here this morning who's not saved, I just ask that before it's too late, that they would trust in the payment that your son made on that cross as payment for their sins, so that they would not have to spend eternity in the lake of fire that's prepared for the devil and his angels. We know from your word that everlasting judgment is not a pretty thing. But we thank you that we are still living in the dispensation of grace and that you are a patient and long-suffering God. But we also know that there is a limit to your patience and your long-suffering. And Father, just ask as we leave here, that we would take this message to heart and not be interested in pointing fingers at other people, but point fingers at ourselves and see what we need to do or let your Spirit do in us to conform us into the image of your Son, that we would be more godly, more Christ-like. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen.